This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. Thank you for joining us for the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm ABA Journal web producer Lee Rawls. Our guest here today is Rick Hassan, author of The Voting Wars, From Florida 2000 to the Next Election Meltdown. Rick is a professor of law and political science at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, and the author of Election Law Blog, which we have twice honored as one of the ABA Journal's top 100 legal blogs. Rick, you say in your book that the voting wars come down to access versus integrity. Can you explain that? Well, uh, since the 2000 election, we've seen a big divide between how Republicans view the problems with our elections and how Democrats do. Republicans, the claims are that there are problems with voter fraud, that there are problems with uh, voter rolls, that things need to be done to tighten up the rules for voting so that we don't allow ineligible voters to vote or eligible voters to vote more than once. On the Democratic side, the concern is much more about disenfranchisement and about access to the ballot. And there the concern is how do we make sure that everyone who's eligible to vote is able to cast a vote. And this dispute between the two parties really casts a long shadow over a whole host of issues from voter ID to election day registration to just questions even about early voting and how we run our elections on election day. Part of the book, you say, objectivity is a point you constantly struggle with as you analyze disputes and that readers need to be self-reflective too. Is there just inherently a partisan view that most people take? Well, I do think that even looking at the way judges have decided cases in recent years, uh, judges who come from a Republican background say that it's a federal judge appointed by a Republican president. It's much more likely to focus on voter fraud as a problem than, say, a Democratic-appointed judge who's going to focus on questions of access. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the best illustration of this, I think, uh, this subconscious move in one direction or another, is uh, after the Florida 2000 election. As you know, the uh, big dispute there was about the recount and how to uh, recount ballots. Many cast on these very um, unreliable punch card ballots to figure out if they were votes for Bush or votes for Gore. Well, after the whole election was over and and Bush was already inaugurated as president, uh, they sent all the ballots. In Florida, their public records and and news organizations uh, asked for them and got them. They sent them to a, a research organization in Chicago and had workers who were being paid, there was nothing political at stake anymore, to go through the ballots and figure out if there were votes for Bush, votes for Gore, votes for neither. And it turns out that if you were a worker with a Democratic background, you were much more likely to find votes for Gore than if you were a, uh, a worker with a Republican background. It's just hard to move away from this. And so the question you need to ask yourself is if it were... Gore versus Bush instead of Bush versus Gore, how would you come out? That is when the party roles are reversed. Is there something about uh, who the party is that's making a difference here? You say that one of the main problems in our election system as opposed to other modern democracies is our partisan election officials, and that's not an issue that I had heard as much about. Could you talk a little bit about that and what the what the pitfalls are there? Sure. Well, uh, again, uh, the book starts with what happened in Florida 2000 and uses that as a jumping-off point to talk about all of the problems in our elections. And so uh, many Democrats still remember that in 2000, the chief election officer of the state of Florida 
was a person named Catherine Harris, and she uh, was not only the chief election officer of the state, she also ran for office as a Republican. Uh, and she made decisions in the election, discretionary decisions about whether to extend deadlines, how to count absentee ballots coming in from overseas. The decisions she made consistently helped Republicans in their fight over these ballots. And the issues of partisanship in elections didn't stop with Catherine Harris. It turns out that all of the election judges are chosen in partisan ways and election supervisors and affiliations as well. And so uh, what we want to do is uh, think about whether this partisanship actually affects outcomes. And it turns out on questions of, for example, whether to purge felons from the voter rolls, that too was an issue that uh, if you were a uh, Democrat, you were much less likely to want to use the felon purge list than if you were a Republican. So it really went all the way from the top to the bottom. You highlight Ohio as a place that's had considerable struggles in recent elections, and I believe you wrote an article for Slate recently about how Ohio could affect this election. Yes, well, Ohio has also had its history of partisan election officials. In Ohio, uh, in 2004, we had a Republican Secretary of State who was very controversial. His name was Ken Blackwell. He made a decision, for example, that registration forms which were not turned in on heavy enough paper would not be counted. And he was replaced by a Democrat, Jennifer Bruner, uh, who, although she said that she was trying to move beyond partisanship in elections, made at least one decision which was quite partisan. She wanted to reject absentee ballot applications which were prepared by the McCain campaign uh, when a voter on that form did not check a box affirming that he or she was a citizen. This was a box that was not required by Ohio law, and the Ohio Supreme Court unanimously reversed her decision to reject those forms. Right now in Ohio, which is seen as maybe the closest race in the country, we're seeing a, a, a number of election disputes. One just got resolved recently by the Supreme Court uh, involving, again, discretionary choices, and again, uh, this time not necessarily choices made by the Republican Secretary of State, John Husted, but choices made by the state legislature, which is dominated by Republicans. Uh, and so one of the things that happened was that the days for early voting were cut back, including eliminating the last three days before Election Day, which we know in 2008 was a time that uh, about 100,000 voters uh, voted on Election Day. A federal court ordered that the Secretary restore those days. That was appealed to the Sixth Circuit. The Sixth Circuit affirmed, and the Supreme Court uh, uh, just issued an order where it refused to get involved in the case. And so uh, we will see those early voting days being restored for the uh, this uh, election season. Uh, let's talk a little bit about voter fraud. I'm interested in both the Fraudulent Fraud Squad and in Hamlin's principle that you mentioned in the book. Could you explain that? Yes. Yeah, so one of the big fights between Democrats and Republicans is over the extent to which there is a problem of voter fraud, which would justify tougher uh, voter uh, regulations. And uh, the focus over the last few years has been putting in place voter identification laws. They've been passed in a number of states. With the exception of Rhode Island, uh, these laws have been passed almost exclusively favored by Republicans and almost exclusively uh, opposed by Democrats. 
And so if you think about the reasons why we might want to have a voter ID law and whether uh, such laws prevent fraud, we need to get a little bit into the weeds into how people commit voter fraud and how prevalent it is. And what I found in researching my book is that the most common type of fraud that occurs involving voters involves absentee ballots, ballots which can be bought and sold, uh, ballots which can be stolen out of people's mailboxes, ballots which can be voted outside the presence of election officials. All of these things make it easier. Uh, and so when we do see cases of election fraud which are actually prosecuted and lead to convictions, they very often involve absentee ballots. The voter ID laws don't do anything to stop absentee ballot fraud. The other kind of election crime that we see is election crime committed by election officials. There, too, voter ID really uh, does nothing to prevent that kind of fraud. To give you an example here, out in California where I am, we recently had a few people plead guilty who worked in the city uh, hall in Cudahy, California, a small city. The absentee ballots were mailed into city hall. They would steam open the envelopes. Uh, if there were votes for incumbents, they resealed the ballots and they were later counted. If there were votes for uh, the challengers, those uh, ballots were thrown away. Again, these are the kinds of things that happen. They don't happen very often, but they happen enough that we need to pay attention to them. But again, not connected to any kind of voter ID law. You know, the, the voter ID law would not prevent any of this. The only kind of fraud that a voter ID law really prevents on any uh, large scale is impersonation fraud. I go to the polls, I claim that I'm you, or I falsely registered, and I claim that uh, you know I'm, I'm this fictitious person, I go and vote in multiple places. Uh, it is very uncommon to see this type of fraud. In fact, a recent News 21 survey went and looked across the country, asked prosecutors everywhere in the country, sent us all of your election crimes, all of your prosecutions over the last uh, period since uh, the 2000 uh, election. And uh, I believe there were about 491, if I'm remembering correctly, absentee uh, ballot prosecutions uh, compared to 10 impersonation cases. Uh, and none of these impersonation cases were tied together. None of them seemed to be tied to any kind of scheme or conspiracy to actually steal an election. We recently had a situation in Texas where dad is out of town, mom takes Junior, the son, to vote in dad's name. He has the same name, but he's Junior. Uh, dad was out of town on a business trip. Dad comes home early from the business trip, goes and tries to vote, sees that he's already voted, and eventually mom gets uh, arrested for voter fraud. Uh, so no grand schemes here to try and steal elections. Yet voter ID uh, laws are aimed at preventing this kind of fraud while they're not aimed at doing anything about the real fraud that happens, which is absentee ballot fraud. Uh, what do we do um, with absentee ballot fraud then? Is yeah, well, one thing we could do is uh, simply say you can't have absentee balloting unless you have a good excuse, like you're out of the country or you are disabled and can't get to the polling place. I don't favor that because I think we have to do a cost-benefit analysis and we have to say, are there other ways to try and catch this fraud? This type of voting is very convenient. Uh, do we really want to eliminate it? But if you did that same cost-benefit analysis, you would see that all of the difficulties that a number of people have in getting voter identification and getting the documentation needed to get the right kind of ID, which would satisfy the state's law, you're gearing up a lot to prevent a, a practically non-existent problem. And so uh, I, I suggest in the book that part of the reason that voter ID laws are being pushed is to try and moderately suppress democratic turnout. Uh, I also think it, that these uh, laws are being pushed by um, uh, almost, again, almost exclusively Republicans, it's a, as that it's a great wedge issue to try and get the Republican base excited about 
Democrats trying to steal the election uh, and to fundraise. So, you know, so that's, that's on the one side. And then uh, I do spend another chapter of the book talking about how much do these laws actually suppress the vote. And I conclude that there's a lot less suppression than Democrats often claim. Uh, we don't know exactly how much, but it does seem to be on the lower end of things, uh, not in the millions of votes, as is sometimes claimed. And Democrats, too, use uh, the fight over voter fraud and voter suppression as a way to get their base excited and to try and get fundraising uh, as well. One of the other things that you talked about, uh, which I think would be of interest to our listeners, uh, is the democracy canon rule and how that was used prior to 2000 and how it's been used or adhered to since. Yes, so the, uh, I've actually written an entire article on the democracy canon, which appears in the uh, Stanford Law Review. It was in the Stanford Law Review in 2009, and I briefly discuss it in this book. Um, one of the things I discovered is that many election disputes uh, involve not provisions of the United States Constitution or state constitutions, uh, but instead involve statutory construction. And uh, as uh, you know, there are various rules of statutory construction. There are both linguistic canons, uh, you know, how, how you read words together, how you read lists of words, uh, those are uh, all linguistic canons. And then there are substantive canons. Uh, for example, uh, the rule of lenity, which says that you should interpret criminal statutes against uh, harsher punishment. What I discovered is a long-standing canon of construction which has been used by courts, at least I traced back to the late 1800s, uh, which says that uh, when there are two interpretations of an election rule, you should choose the interpretation which favors enfranchising voters and counting votes. And I actually think that um, this democracy canon was at play in the 2000 election dispute. There, the Florida's election code was very poorly drafted. There were a number of holes and ambiguities. And the, initially the Florida Supreme Court and then later the U.S. Supreme Court had to fill in those holes and figure out what it is the legislature wanted when it set up these uh, election rules. And uh, I argue that the Florida Supreme Court was actually applying this well-established democracy canon in reading the rules as broadly as possible to enfranchise as many voters as possible, that the Supreme Court, in rejecting this on a, on a textual grounds, uh, ignored the fact that there was this long-standing tradition in uh, Florida of reading uh, the rules in this way. And, and this democracy canon has come up in other contexts as well. It's not a rule, for example, that always would favor Democrats, as uh, occurred in that case. You had Norm Coleman in the Coleman-Franken dispute out of Minnesota. Would you call the Lake Wobegon recount? Yes, the Lake Wobegon recount. My colleague, Ned Foley, who is at Ohio State, who does election law, calls it the Lake Wobegon recount because he said it was you know, above average. I called it the Lake Wobegon recount because it was long and boring. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, Coleman argued that uh, these absent, more absentee ballots needed to be counted, even if they did not comply with the rules in, in an appeal to this democracy canon. And so um, uh, there's a trade-off when you read rules broadly under the democracy canon. There's a chance you'd be changing the rules of the game uh, after the election, and that's a, that, that violates a different principle that we want to have the rules of the election set beforehand so that there's not a lot of discretion to try and change those rules in order to favor one party or another in litigation. But I do suggest that if a state has a long history of the use of such a canon as Florida did, then it's appropriate to apply that canon in the context of an election dispute. Well, Rick, would you mind reading us an excerpt from your book? Sure. I'm going to read the introduction to the book, which uh, sets forth a hypothetical 
Election Day nightmare scenario. Election Day, another presidential election, goes down to the wire. It all hinges on the battleground state of Wisconsin, which has erupted recently in partisan rancor as the governor tried to break the power of public sector unions. As the polling places close, election returns begin to trickle in from the various counties. The lead between the Democratic and Republican candidates seesaws all night as returns roll in. Some counties report quickly, others slowly, and the candidates remain within a few hundred votes of each other. In the middle of the night, when it appears that all the returns are in, aside from some uncounted absentee and questioned ballots, the Democrat has eked out a come-from-behind lead of about 200 votes. The Wall Street Journal's John Fund leads a parade of conservative bloggers and Twitter users, charging that voter fraud was responsible for the Democrats' lead. On a Wall Street Journal opinion journal webcast, Fund points to, quote, bizarre voting patterns in liberal-leaning Dane County, cites Wisconsin laws that allow Election Day registration, and references a controversial Milwaukee police report from a few years back suggesting voter fraud in Democratic areas. There is much to build on. Republicans have been crying voter fraud for years, clamoring for voter identification requirements, tougher voter registration rules, and other laws that could depress turnout of Democrats. The next morning, the head elections official in Waukesha County, Wisconsin, Republican Kathy Nicholas, announces that she had been storing the, election, uh, the county's election results on her laptop computer. When she reported votes on election night, she had inadvertently failed to include 14,315 votes from the city of Brookfield. With those votes included, the Republican candidate jumps to a 7,300 lead statewide, and he appears to be the winner. Republicans quickly drop their cries of voter fraud, and fun goes silent on the Dane County vote. But Democrats and their allies immediately suggest chicanery by Nicholas, who had previously been chastised for lax security with ballots and for using her laptop to store official vote totals. The influential liberal blog Think Progress says that critics suggest that the result must be foul play or incompetence. Quote, all of this evidence raises a cloud of uncertainty over any vote counts, and it raises disturbing questions about the legitimacy of this election. End quote. The URL for the blog post is more pointed. It reads in part, Kathy Nicholas, crook or idiot. Ramona Kissinger, the Democrat on the local elections board, vouches for Nicholas. But the next day she issues a statement posted on a local Democratic Party website. Quote, I'm 80 years old and I don't understand anything about computers. I don't know where the numbers Kathy was showing me ultimately came from, but they seem to add up. I'm still very, very confused, end quote. The Democratic candidate demands a recount and an investigation. Partisans on both sides gear up for a long and bitter fight. Aside from one crucial fact, the story you have just read is true. It happened not in a presidential election, but a 2000 race for the Wisconsin Supreme Court between incumbent David Prosser, a former Republican legislator, and challenger Joanne Kloppenberg, a Democrat and Assistant State Attorney General. Well, Rick, thank you so much. What are some nonpartisan sites you would recommend people follow over the election period? Do you have any? Well, uh, if you want to follow kind of the ins and outs of election administration issues, uh, you can sign up for a daily email from electionline.org. Uh, I would also suggest following Doug Chapin, who uh, is at the Election Academy at the Hubert Humphrey School at the University of uh, Minnesota uh, Twin Cities. Uh, he's also on Twitter. Those are some very good sources for nonpartisan information. I also track everything that's going on with the election, all the fights over the election rules at my election law blog, which is at electionlawblog.org. And I also have information about my book at uh, The Voting Wars, all one word, thevotingwars.com. 
Well, thank you. And uh, let's let's end with the election administrator's prayer that you mentioned in your book, which is, Lord, let this election not be close. Amen. Yeah. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.